0: Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking from Holyrood magazine. I'm Chris Marshall and on this edition of the podcast, we speak to Michael Mara, Labour MSP for North East Scotland. The party's education spokesperson, Mara has impressed since being elected in May and was recently named the one to watch at the 2021 Holyrood Political Awards. But before that, I'm joined by journalists Andrew Learmonth and Louise Wilson to talk about what's been happening over the past week. And Louise, you've been writing about the the fuel crisis. Um, So whose fault is it?
1: Well, it largely depends on who you ask. Um, of course, the big problem is that there aren't enough lorry drivers at the moment, the people driving the tankers to get the petrol to the stations. Um, now, the biggest thing seems to, for that seems to be Brexit. Um, it used to be a lot of EU HGV drivers that would be coming along and driving those for us. Um, and of course, a lot of them have now left. Um, but the Road Haulage Association um, have also pointed out that there were pressures before this um, pre-pandemic there was a shortage of 60,000 drivers. Now a mixture of Brexit and the pandemic has pushed that to 100,000 drivers short. Um, and there's also just various issues like the fact that um, lorry drivers, it's an ageing population. I think the average age is they're about 55. And then the pandemic has also meant that very few people are, have actually been able to sit a test to drive a lorry for the past year. Um, so it's it's a bit of a perfect storm, really. Of uh, Yeah, of I was going to say that. it
0: sounds a bit like a perfect storm because, um, you know, I think that the assumption is that it's brakes related. There's a lot of... Um, Tory cabinet ministers today sort of doing the rounds on radio saying it's not Brexit related but then this doesn't seem to be happening in mainland Europe at the moment.
1: Yeah like it absolutely is Brexit related but there are other other features of it as well um, and you know I suppose Grant Shapps blaming the the media and, and um, various briefings to the media for causing the panic buying. I mean I suppose there is a little bit of truth in that if we want aware that we're shortages then there wouldn't be the panic buying but again the problem stems from the fact that there is a shortage
2: so
0: it's the, it's the media's fault basically
1: i mean we're all terrible and we all know <laughs> <need> that <it.
2: laughs> uh, can i just point out that I, I managed to fill up my car today um i only needed half a tank so you know i, but I got it i got it done the uh, the shell garage and pollock's old and garage uh, mm-hmm. in, in glasgow if anyone's listening and
1: <laughs> Did you actually need it though, or were you panic buying?
2: I was, I was, I was panic buying. If I'm being brutally honest, I mean, I might go away over the weekend, but uh, yeah, yeah, I suppose well, I was panic buying.
0: I mean, you are you are a key worker, Andrew, so um, that's 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 uh, that's fair enough. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there there is an there is an element um, uh, in that, I suppose, that if if BP hadn't made that announcement last week or the week before, I think it was only last week. Um, and the media hadn't reported it, then perhaps we might, might not be in this situation right now. Or was it always going to happen, Louise?
1: Um, I mean, it was always going to happen that there was going to be a shortage. They've, the pressures have been mounting um, for, well, months and months and months. So I guess it was almost inevitable, and someone was bound to notice at some point that there wasn't petrol at the filling stations. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag, really.
0: So. Um amid an increasingly grim picture on the way to winter. Um, there is one kind of bright spot on the horizon, and that seems to be on COVID. The number of uh, cases um, appear to be um, on the decline. N- Nicola Sturgeon has just been talking about it in Parliament just before before we came on air, Louise. Um, and she's, she's decided to delay the introduction of the vac- uh, vaccine certification scheme.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so the plan was for that to come into place on Friday. Now, I believe businesses are still in, being encouraged to actually start it on Friday um, as, as they would have normally, but um, they're pushing back sort of any sort of enforcement action So just as businesses kind of get used to it. Um, I mean, the point is that cases are still high in Scotland. They're just not as high as they have been in recent weeks. So the government is still, you know, adamant that this is... The way to go um the conservatives in particular but also labor um have their concerns about bringing it in um this this delay also reflects the fact that businesses have been concerned about it they're not really sure how to implement it um so it's just it's given them a uh, the government i guess a bit of breathing room um while still saying we're still going ahead with it
0: yeah, I mean, the number of cases uh, appears to be falling or, or, or is falling over the last few weeks, but nobody nobody really knows why.
1: Yeah, it's, it's well, the good news is that it's they're falling despite no sort of new intro, introduction of restrictions, which I think is the first time that's happened. You know, every time that we've gone through a spike before, there's been restrictions imposed in some form, some, sometimes more severe than others. Other times it's just been um sort of when they've been lifted there's been delayed and stuff like that um so i suppose you know the vac- uh the yeah the vaccine is is the reason why why that's happening um and you know still despite the high cases deaths are still relatively low hospitalizations still relatively low so yeah i mean a, a relatively good place in in the uk at least globally less so
0: yeah And and Andrew, with all this going on, uh, we've also had the Labour Party conference taking place this week. Um, I know you've been following that keenly, and uh, particularly (laughs) Anna Sarwar's speech yesterday. Um, What what, what did he have to say at the conference?
2: Um, So he was using his speech. Basically, it was almost... It wasn't really so much for wider consumption. It was more for the people in the hall. It was more for uh, the Labour leadership, perhaps, in Westminster and his colleagues. And he was basically saying there will be no, or there should be no, progressive alliance with the SNP. So his speech followed. There was a report from the Scottish Fabians came out over the weekend that said there's no hope of a Labour government without uh, significant wins for the party in Scotland. So Keir Stammer will not form, will not be prime minister in 2023, if there is an election in 2023, which is kind of what's being talked about at the moment, um, unless he wins 50, at least 15 seats uh, in Scotland. Um, And, you know, uh, let's be honest here, the polls don't suggest that that's going to happen anytime soon. So not 15 seats, 25 seats. I read my notes there wrong. Um, So they need to win at least 25 seats in Scotland, which you know seems a bit of an ask up from up from one. Up from one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really okay. good, yeah. uh, you
1: know,
2: I, Again, so every time we get to an election, every time we get to an election campaign, there's always this talk about, you know, perhaps Labour and the SNP can form some sort of progressive alliance to keep the Tories out. You know, uh, Sauer's speech yesterday was very much, no, let's let's not do this. The SNP are not progressive. They are not our allies. Um, A couple of other things worth noting from his his speech was he talked uh, about, you know, um, uh, increasing or asking the Scottish Government to increase winter fuel payments for the country's poorest pensioners, so up by £70 for those in the lowest income. He also announced an energy transition commission, which will be led by former Minister Brian Wilson uh, to help create a, a greener, fairer, and more prosperous future. But his speech was. Overshadowed, I think, by the infighting that we've come to expect from our Labour Party conference, <laughs> just as, because just as he was speaking, just as he stood up to address the, the party faithful in the, the, the conference hall in Brighton, uh, Andy Macdonald, the shadow secretary of state for employment, quit, or uh, in this new row over the uh, the fifteen pound minimum wage, um, and whether or not Labour should call for a fifteen pound minimum wage to be introduced.
0: Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a Labour Party conference would it, without some some infighting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, you, you said there that uh, Anna Sarwar's speech almost wasn't for wider consumption, and, and that does seem to be the general kind of the general kind of vibe from the Labour Party conferences. Like they're talking to themselves quite a lot, but not really talking to the general public.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's you know when you speak to people in Labour, it's a real frustration that they, they, they basically go to have these because the conferences. Generally, traditionally, is one of those times where you get acres of coverage in the media and the press. So it's a great time to get your messages, your key messages out to the public, which is why, you know, we saw last week here, Stammer released this 14,000-word uh, essay, you know, trying to sort of say, here's what my party believes, here's what we believe, here's what the messages we want to be communicating to the public. But, you know, Labour kind of haven't really been communicating to the public. They've just been having this, this, this new... <laughs> new uh, stage of the battle for the Labour Party. So, you know, where, how, how, what should we be doing? Should we be doing sort of offering these sort of quite radical things like 15 pound uh, minimum wage uh, which could then you know have knock-on effects on jobs or should we be sort of you know trying to be more uh, aiming towards the middle class and be more realistic and less of you know it's just it's it's yeah and basically it's it's, it's a proxy between the different factions in the party between the corbynistas and the left and i suppose those who are more moderate or more sort of towards the center it just That's seems a- so
1: particularly daft given the week the uk government had last week absolutely
2: absolutely, yeah definitely you, you think i mean it just feels like this is this because there was a poll came out we said that labour had sort of made some gains on the tories just right ahead of the conference and it just feels like you know perhaps they could be making more gains if they spent less time holding the government to account and and less time holding um different factions in the party to account
0: yeah, I mean, you've really got to wonder if an opposition party can't make hay in the particular circumstances that we're in at the moment. Is there any hope for them? I mean, we're looking like we're heading for another kind of winter of discontent and they're still behind the Tories in the polls, or they're at least neck and neck with them. Um, Keir Starmer is giving his keynote speech tomorrow, Louise. How important do you think that is for his kind of immediate political future?
1: Um, well... as with anything with Labour it's difficult to say isn't it? It, I guess it depends whether it does get overshadowed by anything else I mean as far as I'm aware we don't really know much of what is going to say it it could be the tipping point, it could be the time where people stand up and think oh wait this is actually a credible opposition or it could be once again swamped by Labour's infighting and and just not paid attention to
0: Yeah and Andrew for the podcast this week you've been speaking to Michael Marrow, who's obviously a a Labour MSP in Scotland, Uh, he's the education spokesperson. Do you think that's, is that an area that the Labour, uh, Labour Party and the Tories have identified as a potential weakness for the SNP?
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon has said before that education and in particular closing the attainment gap will be the, the defining mission of her government, of, of her time as First Minister. And we know that progress on that has been limited. So so definitely it's something I think that, that people like Michael Matter are, are keen to to hold the government's feet to the fire over. Um, and so in the interview we spoke um, uh, not so much about education but we spoke about the, the, the struggles of being in opposition, uh, about how much you can do in opposition and, and how you can hold a government to account when they have uh, uh, you know, they now have a majority in the Scottish Parliament and uh, and you know the, the politics of Scotland is, is dominated by the constitution and, and you're in a party that, that really doesn't want to talk about the constitution.
0: Okay, and uh, let's listen to that interview now. Thanks. Thank you both.
2: Last week at the Hollywood Garden Party Awards, you won our One to Watch Award. Congratulations. Thanks very much. Feels a bit like a, a sort of, maybe a bit of a cursed award, you know, <laughs> one to Watch for expecting big things of you. Do you feel under pressure?
3: Well, they, um, there was there was a woman uh, on my table uh, who said, she uh, says, you're one for the watch and, <laughs> which, which is a, a phrase I would never heard before, but um I'm I'm assuming it's some kind of Glaswegian way of casting aspersions on somebody's character. Glaswegians have a Glaswegians have a variety of ways of doing that, I think. So uh, so that was uh, certainly one of them. Um Oh, no, it's really, it's, it's nice to, to get, you know, something like that. But as I kind of said at the time, it's like, you know, what's what's the award? It's, you know, sound, sound half decent, but have achieved absolutely hee-haw so far. You know, it's just in the door. And, you know, frankly, when you're in opposition, you don't achieve lots for people. You do bits and pieces as you can. But, um, yeah, mostly we'll just, uh, we'll, we'll plug away and hopefully in the, the fullness of time be able to help as many people as we can.
2: How are you finding the new job? So you've been in, you know, this uh, this election. So how's everything going? Have you got everything set up? Office set up, all that sort of stuff.
3: Yeah, yeah. It took took a wee bit of time, um, bit of adjustment. I mean, it's a weird time to be doing anything new, isn't it? I mean, uh, for for anybody in any kind of walk of life. So um, yeah, so I went from sitting in the kitchen. For 14 months, uh, to, to um, like uh, then, on the kind of week following you know the election result, or a couple of days following it, uh, down to Edinburgh. And- I was, it, was, it was pretty odd, I mean, in terms of the, being away from the kids and so on. I mean, i had yes. them every, every day for, for all that time and homeschooling and then, you know, picking up and dropping off, which which actually was amazing, given that I'm now kind of away from home a few days a week. Um, it kind of feels like that was a bit of time in the bank, you know, yeah. um, uh, but but I did kind of miss them. But other than that, um, kind of getting up and running, yeah, things are... Things are getting there, and I'd be, I'd be actually been really lucky. I've got um, a few folk working with me who are just absolutely outstanding, and have helped me kind of hit the, the ground running on, particularly on the, the brief on the education uh, portfolio and the more technical side of that. So uh, yeah, so that's been so yeah. I think I'm just about there. Hopefully,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it was obviously quite a lot of new faces in this uh, mm. in this parliament. So I think 42 or 43, if you include Douglas Ross, um, which I which is it's actually less or fewer new faces in 2021 than there were in 2016, but it just feels a wee bit uh, fresher, maybe, that there's been more of a break with the past this time.
3: There was a, a big group of 99ers who, who left, wasn't there? So people who were kind of time-served, um, who knew their way in and out of the, the kind of uh, how the place worked. Um, so I think that's probably, and some of them pretty big personalities. Yeah. But yeah. Visible people who had held kind of leadership roles and in a variety of parties, um, so um, kind of moving on. And I think that that's probably the the, the big difference, you know. So um, it sure. probably feels a little bit different as as a as a result of that. Um, but there's, I mean, there's, I think that there's you know, there's good folk in, in all parties who are going to hopefully be able to contribute to the kind of national debate over the years to come. So, it's yeah, it has been, uh, I think, a pretty big turnover. Um, and some of that for kind of good reason, but some of it for, for bad reason as well. I think, you know, for there are some people in, in the other parties who have felt pretty ground down over the last kind of few years by um, the constitutional kind of um, deadlock that we're sitting in. Um, and, you know, essentially a government that, Doesn't do very much, and what it does doesn't do very well. And you know, but the kind of their ability to push them into to doing very much is pretty limited. So you know that that I think can be a bit dispiriting. But for for people, but you know, I think it's good to that on that basis to have people who are feeling kind of fresh and positive in there who who can try and do the job.
2: Yeah, I mean, even though you're 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 not one of the. You're one of the new faces. You've, you've hmm. been around the Scottish Parliament for quite a while. I mean, you—you you were a special advisor to the last Labour government. Is that right?
3: Oh, n- not not quite that old, Andrew. Um, but
2: <laughs> not
3: not far off it. Fair to say. I was um, I was a, an advisor to the Labour leader in opposition, kind of, and uh, from two thousand and nine to, to two thousand and twelve. So, um, I, kind of just about two years over that period. Um, so, it, I, and then over the last decade, I've been back in academia um, and doing other bits and pieces. So, yeah, so I kind of, it's it's a bit odd, like in terms of I'm almost in the kind of a a very similar office to the one I was in back then, same corridor, very different places, but also having to learn completely different things. Like, you know, in some respects, I never really knew or worried about how things actually worked. I was more concerned about the politics and, you know, and, and the policy and the presentation, but the technicality of how you legislate. To me, is like a brave new world. So um I'm trying to kind of figure all that out. Um, yeah. yeah, that vibe.
2: So how was that being? Because that that campaign 2011 that was a particularly brutal one for for Labour. That was like living hell. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I'm not sure my therapist allows me to speak about <laughs> it. You know, <laughs> you know. Um, no, it, it's yeah. It was a pretty. It was a pretty taxing. I mean, if you, if you pour your heart and soul into something, as I did as a guy who was, you know, kind of in my late 20s at that point. And frankly, you've got the physical stamina to do it. Um, you know, I, I used to kind of work from six in the morning till, you know, 11 o'clock at night and, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, a couple of pints to get myself to sleep and then then at it again. And, and that was for years. Um, and, you know, you pour yourself into something like that. Um, and, you know, when you, you get the result that, you know, I think quite a lot of us always felt was probably likely to come in the end. Um you know, you 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 end you end up with um yeah, it's a pretty pretty difficult situation. Um and a lot of people, you know, in terms of you on your side, lose their jobs and you know, um, but more importantly across that whole piece, you know, your kind of your, your vision of where you want the country to go is um is kind of set back and that kind of commitment. You've got to, and unfortunately, we've headed down that kind of cul de sac for the intervening decade. Um, we're still stuck there,
2: yeah. I mean, it, so we're talking just now. This podcast is being recorded on the, the weekend of the Labour Party conference. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, Keir Stammer's just published his, his 1400 word pamphlet on you know, 40,000, not 1400. <laughs> 40, 000, sorry, 40, <laughs> um, Have you have you read it yet?
3: Have yeah 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 yeah. I read it on the read it on the train the other night. I mean I think I think it, to me it's it's it, it's an eminently sensible kind of proposition about where where Keir finds the country, um and uh, and where he wants to take us. Um and I think it's a bit of a reset into, frankly, our reality based politics. Um about you know the the situation that the country faces. But I think it's hopeful. Um it's aspirational. Uh and it's based in the guy that. I think the person that I know a very little bit, um, I've met him a couple of times now, um, he's a man of utter determination to turn the country in a different direction to make it better for ordinary people across the islands. And, um, you know, I just hope that we, over the next year, two years, we can kind of build on that, turn that into a policy platform, but actually a story about where we want to take the country that kind of can convince enough people Um, that were the answer to, I think, the question that everybody is asking, uh, which is how do we get rid of this disastrous, hideous, ridiculous (laughs) government we've got at the moment?
2: I mean, because there's talk of a general election in 2023. I keep saying that again and again and again. I mean, do you think Labour could... How, do you think Labour are going to win in twenty twenty three? How do Labour win in twenty twenty three? Maybe that's the better question to ask. Yeah,
3: it's, I mean, so so it's, it's the well, it's the big question, isn't it? So we I mean, we we have to have a a much broader appeal than than that which we had in in the last election. Uh, that's for certain, and frankly, uh, broader than the election before, um, and the election before. So you know, it's a it's a, it's a huge hill we've got to climb. That's what you know we found in the the, uh, the last general election result. You know, we knew. The, the the scale of that challenge electorally is huge. But you know, we're up against um a, a government that is utterly opportunistic, that um as as Keir points out in that in that essay, you know, is prepared to, you know, change their clothes, change their skin, um, and shift and shape their shape dramatically. So, you know, essentially we're up against a, a populist nationalist government um in the UK um that's prepared to do or say just about anything. So um, being the people who have to have a kind of form of consistency <laughs> within that is really tough. You know, you have a kind of a moral vision of where you want to see the country going and persuading people of that. But it has to be a broad uh, appeal that people can actually think is realistic. Um, and I think uh, for too long now, our politics have um, been both backwards-looking I mean by this, I mean the Labour Party being backwards looking, but also unrealistic about the future, um, and we have to sound convincing and rooted in ordinary people's lives. Um, for too often, we, we just we just haven't been.
2: Hmm. I mean, how did you How did you find being a part a member of the party under Corbyn? I, I read somewhere that you know you went along to one of his first meetings or before he was elected leader in Dundee, and did he? did he win you over at any point? Were you sort of?
3: I mean, I, I've, I've always viewed myself um, as being probably on the soft left of the Labour Party. Um, I mean, that's my, I think, probably intellectual and um, kind of spiritual home. Um, you know, I, I want to see a fundamental reset in the way that our economy works. I want to see a completely different way of the way that people are treated in, th- in this country. I want to see a far more equal country. But I recognise within that that you know you have to work with the grain of the people that that live here. You know you, you can't kind of cast fantasy spells about you know where where the world's going to go. Um, and I suppose in the kind of the early days, I looked at. I think a lot of people in the party were looking at uh, Corbyn and saying, you know, this is a decisive break from um, where we have been, which is some people in the party viewed it as a kind of a technocratic kind of um, approach to politics um, that the kind of the post new labor generation represented and they, they they wanted something that was felt more moral felt more kind of rooted in uh, values and there was i think a kind of a fairly broad appeal across the movement in that regard i mean people who you know i would say politically were well to the right of me um so within the Labour Party terms supported Corbyn Um and um but I'm afraid all of my kind of suspicions at the start of this came came to fruition. You know, we had a Uh, Somebody who was almost like I think Jeremy Corbyn to me was like a monk. You know, he's like kind of monkish, monkish sensibility who kind of lived on an allotment somewhere. You know, making jam, and there was an appeal to that. Though people felt like this was somebody who was out with the kind of the traditional mainstream of politics, and there was a there was a kind of a a warm appeal about that personality. Um, But frankly, the people that were around them were utterly toxic. But they were um, people who had um, lived in the kind of internal Labour Party culture wars for thirty years, um, and were had no focus on the country. They were just basically their own fantasists. Um, And I think anything that I've kind of read or seen about uh, Corbyn since then um, would seem to kind of confirm that that he was was almost like a hostage in the whole position. Um, And you know that I'm afraid. I mean, the day of the the you know the ACHR uh, referral um, was probably my most difficult day ever being in the Labour Party since I was a a, a teenager, um, and a feel of utter deep shame sure. at the um, where we had found ourselves, um, and I never want to feel like that again. Hmm.
2: Uh, you know, there's still. Obviously, when you went to that meeting, like the piece I read, uh, you said you told the journalists after you'd been to that Jeremy Corbyn meeting that there were people in that room, Corbyn supporters, who had, you know, just a month ago in the referendum campaign, I think, it was had tried to to spit on you, and it's a two thousand and fifteen election to try to, you know, want to spit on you, and here they were. You
3: know, now, those so those people those people weren't Corbyn supporters. They would they have never joined the Labour Party, but they they um, they saw in Jeremy Corbyn the, the opportunity to to do what they always wanted to do, which was to destroy the Labour Party. You know, so these, these weren't members of the Labour Party. There were people who went along to, to to this meeting and were cheering them from the rafters. There was good Labour Party people in that meeting who went on to support Jeremy Corbyn. I completely understand why they did it. But there were people in that room. And I think that that's, in essence, was what I'm talking about in terms of the, that broader grouping of some people on the hard, hard left that saw this as an opportunity to destroy the the Labour Party, which is frankly has been their long term aspiration in their politics. They they believe, you know, as kind of Trotskyites, that they believe in a kind of a transitional mode around the our our politics, where you, you know you have to reveal to people that capitalism is 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 evil, and you do that by destroying everything in your wake. And those are those are the people who, in part, who were attracted to what they saw as a kind of a vanguard possibility of you know, destroying the labour movement and and everything that it has achieved and could achieve. So th- those were the people, frankly, who had um, tried, one of them in particular, who tried to uh, spit on me um, a matter of weeks before. Um, and, you know, you kind of recognise, or I recognised at that moment, that, you know, that there was a fair chance that Jeremy, unfortunately, would always attract some of that element of... Politics and across the UK, and I think that the ACHR outcome was probably the culmination of that. Yeah. So yeah, so that that's not to characterise him; it's not to characterise people in the Labour Party. But I think that they kind of recognise that where some of that politics and the, the, how it was attracted. I mean, I've been I've been a member of the Labour Party as I say my whole my whole adult life and some of, some of my childhood it feels like as well. Um, and uh, the people that I have met in the Labour Party are are the, the some of the best people. You yeah. could possibly, you could possibly be utterly committed to, to their communities, or utterly committed to, you know, their families and their, their faith and their and, and, and wanting the best for everyone. Those people aren't like that.
2: Clearly, one of the other big issues at the Labour Party conference this week is over internal reform as well. And, and again, I suppose it kind of goes back to to some of. Mm-hmm. Maybe not some of those people, but some of the people in the party who supported Corbyn and who now feel like they're almost being pushed out or squeezed out. I mean, uh, uh, do you think these reforms are, are necessary? Do you think this is that a fight Keir Stammer is picking? You know, that's the thing in politics; you also have to pick your fights, don't you? Is this a fight yeah. that's worth picking?
3: I mean, so uh, this is if this is kind of the, around, uh, you know, return of electoral college. You know, I, I absolutely believe that the leader of the Labour Party has to command the support of the parliamentary party. Yeah. I mean that has that has always been a kind of a key tenant of the of, of the way that the party has been organised, and you know I'm also old enough to recognise that you know this this debate has has gone in different directions. You know I remember John Smith you know proposing one member one vote, and John Prescott kind of top thumping speech from the podium to kind of push it through. Um, you know it's it, I don't I don't think that this is to me this isn't a kind of like necessarily a kind of a left right rule change it's about how do you practically govern a political party that is, is and always should be a broad church you know and it's actually to make something that is actually operates cohesively and for big parts of recent years you know post Ed Miliband's reforms the Labour Party has not operated as a cohesive organisation that is actually structurally financially um, and politically sound and actually if this is what the leadership and the General Secretary think needs to happen in order to make that operate as, a, as an organisation, then, you know, I would support that.
2: Hmm. But, you know, making the party politically sound, you know, that means maybe having to get rid of some people who are in the party causing problems, doesn't it? But, well,
3: it, it's pretty clear that there have been people in the Labour Party in recent years who shouldn't be in the Labour Party. Sure. I mean, I I hope and believe that that would be a relatively small number of people, yeah. um. But there are, you know, you just have to look again at the ECHR situation. I mean, there are people who are, you know, clearly racist who are in the Labour Party. That is untenable and unacceptable. So you, you kind of, if you know, I hear some of the same voices kind of arguing about this in the recent days. Um, that is a, you know, the same people um, casting back to you know certain different groups being prescribed, as they were at a recent NEC meeting, and I absolutely 3,000% support people who are racists being removed from the Labour Party. If that's what we're talking about, then it has to happen, and the quicker that it happens, the better. Um, I I totally agree and believe and always will that the Labour Party has to be a broad church that takes in different people. It always has been you know, and it should always be, you know, and it's it's why, you know, we are, we are a party of internal dissent, and we should be continue to be so, you know, there has to be space for people to, to disagree, because, you know, our politics of progress will always be bringing people from different backgrounds and different places and beliefs together, you know, and finding common ground. That's what po- politics is about. You know, it shouldn't be narrow in one direction or the other, but neither should it be extreme.
2: Let's talk about Scottish Labour now. Um, yeah. You know, 2021 it, it was, I think, what, the worst ever election result you've had in the Scottish Parliament. The uh, party was down two MSPs to 22, finished third behind the Tories and the SNP. So, the, almost the same question I asked uh, about five minutes ago. You know, what does, what does Anna Sower need to do to, to win? Can, can Scottish Labour ever form the government in Scotland again, do you think? Well, absolutely. And we have
3: to, you know, I think that gonna the, put the situation that we find Scotland in, the state of our economy, the state of our um, public services, pre-pandemic, and it's going to be even more acute post-pandemic as we come uh, come out of the, this period. Um, you know, I believe that we have to get ourselves in a situation where, you know, we can offer to the people of Scotland to form a government that can actually govern properly. And I think a lot, a lot of time at the moment, that just isn't what's happening. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a responsibility that's on us. Uh, but it's also recognising, you know, uh, the kind of the, the constitutional bind that the country's in. You know, as I say, we're it's the, the most depressing thing about, the, about being in Parliament is sitting there watching Nicola Sturgeon and Douglas Ross feed off each other, you know, like kind of symbiotes, you know, who are completely... Um, th- th- love the fact that they're entirely dependent on on each other. You know, it's like listening, it's watching the DUP, you know, in in the uh, in in Douglas Ross's terms, you know, and kind of indulge in the ulsterization of politics. And actually they um, it's almost the people get no look in. The people have no voice. And they are completely excluded from that conversation. You know, we are we, the, the actual specific needs of people in across the country. They are not talking about what Nicholas Sturgeon and Douglas Ross are talking about on a daily basis that is the most depressing thing to me. So, you know, they are, they're they caught, everything becomes about the constitution. And, you know, they, they try to play Labour and kind of push us into kind of one direction or another, characterise us, oh, you know, you're sympathetic to this side, oh, you're, you know, you're flirting with that side, you know, in order to kind of play us in that game. So what, what we have to do is do our best in whatever way to break out of that frame. Don't get me wrong, it's incredibly difficult. Um, so, and we can only do part of that Part of the issue is this, at some point, Scotland, I believe and hope, will turn its face towards progress again. And the Labour Party has to be ready to be part of that conversation when it does.
2: When's that going to happen?
3: When do you think? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> when's it, so when's it going to happen? I think. So what? I suppose the the, the question in that is what can make it happen? Um, what could make it happen is uh, potentially um, another referendum, which uh, on current circumstances, I think there's almost no chance of the SNP winning because their case is so weak, so weak, and getting weaker by the day. Um, and then the other uh, the other thing that can make it happen is people just getting so bloody fed up of declining public services, an economy that's going in the wrong direction, um, you know the uh, the social circumstances that they they find their communities in um, of increasing levels of poverty, um, you know, just that they actually say we recognise that we're in a cul-de-sac here, and that this government, particularly this government, is doing nothing about it. And you know, I think if you saw before the election, you know, um, you know, before COVID. Um, the people's consideration of where, what the job they thought the SNP was doing—it was pretty abysmal. It was really pretty abysmal. Then we went into an election where every uh, incumbent government across the UK received an endorsement, whether that be city mayors, regional uh, governments, devolved governments—you know, kind of national governments—and you know that was a picture that was replicated, you know, in large parts of the world that were going through those processes. Because people in, in a time of crisis, I think kind of knuckle down uh, and and give that. so it's um that kind of a, it, um, in time of crisis, people more tend towards to validate and support the the devil they know, you know, and I think that that's I think that's what they did. Uh, so what what does that say in terms of I think people uh, in the in I hope in the medium term will look and begin again to scrutinize. What this government has done over 14 years, and find it as one thing as I think it is.
2: But you think there might need to be a second independence referendum for that to happen?
3: No, no. That's so. This, so those are the two options. So one, one is one is that there's a referendum that breaks this, um, that breaks this kind of deadlock, and the other is that actually people recognise that perhaps a referendum's not going to happen and that they, uh, frankly, that the record is intolerable in the in the short term. <laughs> because, I, you know, and I, and I think that, you know, you just have to listen to SNP backbenchers like, you know, Michelle Thompson the other night saying that there isn't going to be a referendum. You know, the senior figures in the SNP, you know, quite clearly of the view that it's not going to happen. You know, and this, you know, ever-long, persistent dance between Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon to have a referendum actually that the country doesn't want you know, I think the recent opinion polls put it out about twenty percent of people want a referendum in the next two years, but that's the timetable that the that Nicola Sturgeon is working on. You know, she's now got civil servants back preparing another white paper, another case. You know, and um, when we have COVID levels at the highest level they have ever been, we've got an economy that is not fit for the future. It's not fit for the bloody past, frankly. You know, we've got public services which are in utter crisis you know a health service facing pressures of unprecedented scale uh, you know and we've, we've we've got a government that thinks that what it should be spending its time on is preparing the case for a referendum that, that people are telling them loud and clear they don't want you know, you know i think there's there's a it's a, obviously there is a big group of people in the country who would vote for independence if that happened you know that is their right you know um and uh, and i understand why many of them want to do it you know, uh, but it's, it's not a position I agree with, but I don't think they want the referendum now. And, it, and as long as Nicola Sturgeon spends her time telling them that it should happen now, I think she's on the wrong side of the public. And I think that and I hope that uh, the public will uh, increasingly tell her that, that they don't think it's a tolerable position.
2: So, I mean, you're right about the polls, but the polls also told us in the run-up to the election, you know, when Scottish voters were asked what the the most important issues were to them, you know, it was things like the health service, it was things like COVID recovery. But when they were asked, you know, what's the biggest factor when it comes to deciding which political party to vote for, the number one issue was always the constitution. I mean, Labour's position on the constitution has always been, as you said, you've kind of tried to break out of that frame, but by trying to break out of that frame, you've not always been able to i may even maybe not always had the strongest position in the constitution. Totally, I mean, it's, it's 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 the bind. It's
3: it's the bind that we find ourselves in, you know, um, because we um, we will not and cannot be defined by our position entirely on this issue. But that's not where, for big in big ways, where the country is. I totally understand that. Um, you know, I didn't get into politics to talk about. Um, flags, you know, to talk about, you know, kind of the, the currency of and an independent Scotland. But I recognise that is of primary importance to many people. You know, I, I get that in terms of what they want. And that is really a case of what, what are we going to stop here? So there's many people in the election were saying to me, you know, um, I'm going to vote Tory because in my mind, you know, they are the most surefire way of stopping another independence referendum. But the reality is in the longer run, they can't get, the Tories can't get rid of the SNP. It's Labour that can get rid of the SNP because actually the Tories rely on the SNP. You know, and, and as I say, the people of Scotland are utterly neglected in the middle of that equation.
2: Uh, in the last referendum, am I right, you were working on, or you were involved with uh, Dundee University's five million questions, is that Yeah, right? yeah, that's right, that's right. How was that? How, how did that sort of uh, affect, affect your perception of, of what was going on then?
3: So, <laughs> uh, so we, we basically, we set up a kind of a, a research and communications uh, kind of a piece where we tried to, my kind of like kind of view of it was that let's universities do their civic duty, which is to take the research and the knowledge and expertise they've got and try to better inform that debate, you know, kind of to, to pr- provide that to the, uh, and be a place where people could have conversations about this, hence, you know, 5 million questions people had questions they wanted answered, answer and we were trying to kind of facilitate that. So we had a kind of a cross party um, board of citizens, people who were kind of like to try to to monitor the output and make sure that it was um, all kind of, um, there was above board and everything that was done, um, you know, we, we, had a, we had a little bit of kind of communication from, from the, to say the least, from the yes side, who basically came and tried to shut it down. Um, so I remember the um, a government special advisor who came and uh, tried to one tell us we should be doing it, and two tell us that uh, actually if we were doing it, we might want to look at these specific questions. Um, and um, the, you know there was there was no such intervention from the other side, um, and I, that, that kind of confirmed partly to me about the 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 way that. The Scottish government operates, the way that they try to um, intimidate at times the um, the kind of civic and uh, public Scotland. Um, and I think that anyone working in the public sector or in the third sector would, would recognise um, at a certain level that that is the, um, their, their modus operandi around these things. So I suppose that's what it kind of taught me about some of those. We also had loads of really interesting things, you know, um, we had a, a brilliant lecture from Hugh Strawn, kind of famous um, military historian who talked about what the future of defence in Scotland would look like. We had John Kay, who talked about the kind of the, the economic um, history and future of Scotland. Um, it was really interesting. And then we had politicians who came and, you know, said the same Things that they were saying, everybody else. So yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a good project, but actually, the appetite—probably more than anything else—the appetite for for the for for the engagement—and it was utterly huge. I mean, were unprecedented numbers of people coming through the doors of the university to to talk and to listen and to try and be informed because people were so engaged in it. So that that kind of you know. 2014, without any doubt, was a huge exercise in civic engagement in uh, what I thought was a, a,
2: a almost entirely reductive question. <laughs> um, and in terms of, 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 you're pretty sure there won't be another referendum. There won't be in 2023. Then I, I don't. I don't see
3: at the moment. I don't see the basis on which the UK government will think it is a in their interests or b in the interests of the people of Scotland and I probably think that they would do it in that priority order you know I don't don't see um, uh, Boris Johnson thinking that this would be a good idea to go ahead with this Um, you know it's uh, and then and I, yeah, I don't see. I don't see why they would, and that is the, probably the key consideration. I mean, where does it then end up? Do we end up in a situation where Nicola Sturgeon goes to court, um, tries to pursue this, ends up in the Supreme Court, becomes a test of how, how the constitution and uh, unwritten constitution of the UK is, is, is formalised or otherwise? Um, how does that decision go? Difficult for me to say, um, but I don't see that happening within the next eighteen months. Don't know if you do. But I don't think anybody sensibly looking at that the timetable thinks that what Nicola Sturgeon is proposing was is anything other than um, you know kind of messaging for the troops.
2: Um, let's talk a wee bit more about you, if that's all right. Um, mm. how, what, what were you doing before becoming an MSP? Where were you then? So for the last ten years, I have.
3: Um, run research projects at the university of dundee um so i suppose my background econ- academically is in economics but i quite strain- strangely found myself uh, working in most recently in forensic science um like yeah the, yeah like murders and stuff like that proper csi stuff yeah 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 so there you go um i mean i wasn't doing any of the science they wouldn't trust they wouldn't trust me to do anything like that and rightly so um but i was supporting some unbelievably um smart and, um, diligent, uh, committed people who did exactly that kind of work. Um, so we, we would have, uh, my, my colleagues had that portfolio case work that, um, in, across all kinds of different areas um, and it'd be all kind of, uh, from, Yeah. See Yeah. I don't really want to name all the cases. It's not really appropriate. Not really appropriate, but I know that that's kind of the more <laughs> side of it when I'm able to stipulate all those. But um yeah, so my um but my, my colleagues were um were, were great people. So I did that for the last kind of, few years. Um and I suppose my kind of job and that's mostly about kind of uh bit of kind of research management, uh but also working with um with, with companies to try and uh and innovate uh with them to develop new products and bring jobs. To the northeast of Scotland, so I've done did that for ten years, and uh, but mostly also kind of having a family um over that decade um to uh, young kids uh, as well as I've got a grown up daughter as well, um so we uh, were uh, yeah doing a lot of that. So that's probably me of late. But I've also been a councillor for the last few years. I was elected in twenty seventeen for uh, the Lockheed Ward in Dundee, which is I suppose kind of if you would call it the kind of spiritual home of my f- my family who arrived in Lockheed from Ireland in the 1820s. And, um, and we have kind of always been involved in politics and trade unionism around that, that area of the city and, and the labour movement.
0: Hmm.
2: How, how did you find being a local council? That must be, uh, I mean, being a local council is quite a big responsibility, any ward, but being the... <laughs> With a family spiritual home or the-
3: <laughs> Yeah. And I mean and also I mean I mean Lockie's obviously Lockheed is all the one of the most impoverished wards in the whole of Scotland. Um, and uh, huge uh, social challenges but full of brilliant people and I absolutely love being a counsellor. I'm still a counselor and I'll give it up in May and I will really, really miss it. Because um, I think in practical terms, um, the, the 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 day job of being helping run public services locally and holding people to account around how those are done, you, you feel like you're having a genuine practical input into the way that things happen. And I will miss that a lot. Um, but I think think for the first time, you know, you, you have an elected mandate for, in your life when you're involved in politics. You know, having a, having a mandate to speak on behalf of people and to represent them is transformative in the way that you can act and what you can achieve. You know, and even as you know, in opposition as we are in Dundee, the Labour Party and, you know, um, now kind of nationally, you know, there's there's no doubt in terms of the, having that mandate of people supporting you makes such a difference in terms of your political activism. So, so yeah, no, I've absolutely loved it and being able to help people just kind of day to day in terms of whether it be about kind of their housing issues and their schools and, um, you know, problems that they're having and bins that need emptied and all that stuff. It just feels deeply practical. And, and and it's uh yeah the the and drink of uh, and i uh, yeah my colleagues who are labor councillors right across Scotland i think are just
2: the best people so i mean in terms of in terms of talking about the family and you're talking about you know how lockdown you've been able to be there much more and you know you also talked about the the, the being ground down in the 2011 campaign and in 2015 campaign for the as well and just mm. i mean was there any part of you that, when you were throwing your hat into the ring for two thousand twenty-one, you thought, "Sack this! I like being a counsellor. I want to see my family. No way am I going to Hollywood." What made you think I'm going to do this?
3: It's a bloody good question. Um, I mean, I suppose more more than generally, I'm an optimist, okay. and you know, I just, I just, I suppose, maddeningly, for some people, like, I mean, you, you can't really be a member of the Scottish Labour Party in the last twenty years and not be. You know, and re- retain retain your membership for all for all kinds of reasons. You have to have a belief that things will get better, um, and you know, not just for, for the Labour Party. I mean, that's a very much a secondary consideration to or far down the list in terms of what matters. You know, it's very much about the people in the country, and so so yeah. I, I suppose in that regard, you kind of look at it and you think, can I make a difference here? Can I have an impact? Can I? try and change things for the better, and, that thing, and yeah, 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 probably can, so so that's why I did it, uh, and even just, you know, I kind of suppose even in the first few weeks, you know, we've, um, you know, won a pay rise for workers um, in the NHS, you know, I have secured funding for um, students who are um, training to be dental technicians um, who had been refused it by the government. Uh, and you use the platform to do those things to try and improve people's lives, and and so I, I think and hope that even just those things day by day can, you know, I can I, I can have that impact. So yeah, so that I suppose in that kind of like wanting to do it, I could kind of see where where I could have those impacts and and helping people, um, and that's why I've done it. And also, there's a little bit of you know, it's it's basically rather than having to concentrate on forensic science. During the day, and then think about politics at night. It means you can think about one thing most of the time. So, uh, so being a like, and that that's Suppose kind of being a councillor is a kind of a in reality, particularly in opposition, is a kind of a part-time affair, and it means that you can focus full time and all your energy on what you think you're able to do and what you think you're good at. And I hope over time I can get better at this as well you know, but we saw Jenny
2: Mara, who is your sister. You know, she's too. She's sad. still my sister,
3: yeah. She's sister.
2: <laughs> but she's no longer an MSP. She, uh, yeah. she, she didn't stand down from being your sister. But uh, <laughs> if, she, if she could, which I'm, <laughs> I'm sure there's times
3: that she would have taken that option.
2: But, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, she part, part of the reason she's you know she she left Hollywood was because of you know just feeling very far away from the family and mm-hmm. having to deal having to deal with the what the. The abuse and just the the, the the nastiness of of politics in twenty twenty one did that not go in your head? Think no, I don't want to do this. You know,
3: no. <laughs> so, my, I mean, my, my kids, my kids are a bit older for one thing. So, sure. so that I mean, I I wouldn't have done this, um, you know, seriously, when my, my kids were very young. You know, when I stood when I stood in twenty fifteen, I knew that I wasn't going to win. So, you know, it's, it's the reality, you know. So, so you know, you, you did it without the, kind of the full knowledge of that. It doesn't mean you don't work as hard as you possibly can again every vote, and, you know, we did, but, you know, you do it and you're, you're not naive about the whole thing. Um, you know, now, um, you know, there's the, the opportunity to do that, but like the, I'm not all that. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not. Um, I use Twitter mostly to look up what's happening with Dundee United. Um, I am... Um, I think social media generally is an echo chamber where you hear, you know, like all these things are completely obvious to to folk who, you know, Um, I think actually social media is an utterly malignant force um, that is basically encouraging fascism in big parts of the world. And so I do my best to ignore it. So I, I don't, I don't really. If people say things about me, I, I, I suppose I'm kind of comfortable enough in my own skin. I've got a group of friends who I've been my friends since I was a kid, who I went to school with. Who you know I don't see enough of now, but like who still, you know, I I listen to them. You know, I, I don't care what people say about me on social media. So, but 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 I, in some respects, I probably did care what they said about my sister. <laughs> So, so, and and I, I worried about her at times, um, because I think at times things got particularly brutal. And I think for for uh, a woman, um, I think that you know there are times that I worried about her safety. I worried about um, uh, what would, what could happen to her um, as a result of how how vicious some of the kind of political discourse has has become. So, uh, but yeah, I suppose it's kind of like. Don't really think about yourself in those ways in the same way. Sure, sure, sure. But I think, but I think it's completely insane. I mean, I don't think it's a. I don't think becoming a politician is a reasonable thing to do. <laughs> right? Think, okay. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Why is it not a reasonable thing to do? Why is it
3: just just for, because I don't? Well, it, I mean, if you, you know, if you, I suppose the kind of the rational thing to do is to think, you know, right? Well, um, how productive is the political discourse at the moment? What what can we you know, what's the best way of um, having the best life for your family and whatever else is to go off and get a better-paid job doing something else, probably, isn't it? But I, I don't. I don't think it's. But I don't think people get into politics for rational reasons. Most people, the overwhelming majority of people, do it because they they want to make. They want to change things. They want to make things better for for other people. And the, And and I think for most people, it's a pretty selfless act in that regard. So in that regard, I don't think it conforms to a homo economicus kind of vision of the world. No. Mm. Mm.
2: It's, just, it's just, I suppose, it's how we get there, how you, how, you, how you do that with that discourse. It almost goes back to what you were saying earlier on about the Labour Party, you know, being a space to disagree. It kind of needs all politics, really, to be a space to disagree, but the discourse... Are, Certainly, discourse around certain issues in Scottish politics. Mm -hmm. It feels like there's there's no space to disagree. It's, you know, if you're not on my side, then you're uh, against me. And I suppose you've got a couple of those issues coming up, maybe sort of independence, but also things like the GRA reform. Mm -hmm. Do you know how you're going to be voting on that or what your thoughts are on that?
3: On the GRA side of it. So, I mean, I I think we've we've got a pretty clear manifesto position as the Labour Party, which we um, believe that people who are trans need further protection, you know, that they they require uh, protection and that we believe that laws need to be reformed to do that. We also, within our manifesto, are very committed to women's rights, um, very committed to that. So <laughs> the challenge of this is that some people tell me that those two things are in conflict. Mm. I'm not convinced that they are, um, and but it will depend very much on what, what the bill looks like you know the first minister tells us that they, that they will not be in conflict in the way that our legislation is framed but when we see a bill then we'll will know whether those two things can be done in in concert and i think that they have to be so you know it's uh, would would be my would be my view
2: another big issue i suppose would be over the uh, Liam MacArthur's assisted dying bill i mean have you yeah. have you had a thought about that about what you know how you'd vote on that
3: i'm opposed to that I mean, Lee, Lee, uh, um, Liam is Liam is such a lovely guy. One of the, yeah, it's a great guy. I've known Liam for a, quite a long time, and a uh, great respect for him. And I have great respect for him bringing forward the bill. Actually, I think it's right that mature societies discuss death in a in an informed way as part of life. Um, I find it difficult to see where the necessary protections for people can be accommodated within that in terms of people who see themselves or are pushed into seeing themselves as a burden to their families and society. Um, I don't think it's necessarily about legal safeguards. It's about how people feel. Um, And too often, I think in a country as unequal as ours, there's too many people who don't have a right to life in the first place. Um, And I I would rather that we focused on that. But I recognise that there are so many people who have, you know, debilitating and terrible conditions who want this option. Um, but I find it difficult to conceive of how the the right safeguards could be put in place to protect people. I also believe recognise that there is a very strong religious and moral stance that it, it would be unacceptable. Um, and, you know, there's many people made representations on that basis to me as well. Uh, but my, my, my view at the moment um, is that I would be opposed to it.
2: Your view at the moment so I mean does that mean there's, there's <laughs> that's so possible it's, it's it's one
3: of these it's one of, i suppose and it's good that you pick that up actually because um I don't particularly like to be doctrinaire about, sure. about um any kind of such issues you know when when the facts change you know you change your mind but i mean they I am open to hearing. I hope always, and I think that that probably comes to the kind of the, the core of your your first part of your question. Like, how how do you, how do you find accommodation in really polarized issues? Well, you, you know, don't don't shut your ears to to the other side. You know, and we go back to our kind of question about the constitution, and that it's like, you know, I, as I said earlier, I absolutely understand why many people vote for independence. You know, I I, I get that. And I don't, I do not believe that these people are stupid. I don't believe that they are foolish. I don't believe that they are um, immoral. You know, I, I think the people are looking to do the best for people around them. I have a very positive view of human nature. And so you have to be open to listening to other people's perceptions. It doesn't mean you're going to always agree, but the, the the problem isn't about the conclusions necessarily. Our discussion is about the discourse, you know. And you, if, you, if you treat people with contempt, then don't don't be surprised when people treat you with contempt as well.